Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AH63, Work, Play, and Rest. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 167. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to deal with the subject of work and play. Some years ago, in the early 30s, a doctor wrote a book on the balanced life, and he described it as a combination of work, play, worship, and rest. This was uh, a very good analysis. One of the things we often forget is the amount of uh, rest that the Bible prescribes. One day in seven, one year in seven, and the Jubilee year as well. This meant that the person living in uh, terms of a biblical culture, and some still do, like the Amish, had every seventh year to devote to all kinds of uh, activities such as rest and play and also to work to improve the premises, to paint the house and the barn, to do wood carving and that sort of thing. Thus the Bible with its Sabbath years and jubilee did make provision for a great deal of rest as well as play on the part of man. Now there's an important distinction here and a number of books have been written on the subject and I have written in one or two of my books on the subject of leisure, also pronounced as leisure. It is very different from rest because the whole goal of uh, leisure is not to rest from work, but to substitute uh, leisure for work, to replace the whole of the work ethic with a play ethic. Recently, there was a flyer that reached me in the mails, and the gist of it was this man was offering to tell his readers if they would subscribe to his newsletter how they like him could retire at the age of 36 and spend the rest of their life in leisure activities. Leisure today has become the goal of man and it has replaced work and has warped everything else in a man's life. So we're not concerned with leisure except in a negative sense. But work, play, worship, and rest are important to the life of man. Now, work for a Christian is dominion-oriented. It is to bring about the dominion of man over the world of nature, over the materials of nature, and to develop his culture. 
And as a result, there can be no advance, no progress without godly work. Work on any other terms becomes an urge to domination rather than dominion and is destructive. Well, with those opening observations, Otto, do you want to follow uh, with any observations of yours? Well, yes. I think that the word work has taken on some rather difficult connotations. Modern life, vocation is something else. Work is, you might say, labor that isn't involved in a voc- in a calling, isn't involved in a vocation, and it can be very difficult and very unrewarding in every sense. Uh, in my estimation, people get involved in work because they don't follow their vocation for one reason or another. I remember talking to a fairly successful executive in the asphalt business who said, well, uh, I said something complimentary about how far he'd gotten, and he said, well, yes, but I would rather have gone into medicine. And I said, why didn't you? Well, he said, I got married. Well, I said, I didn't see where that stops you. Lots of men have been married and become physicians. And uh, the conversation went on to some other point. But I thought, and I was surprised, I thought, well, here he is. He's uh, fairly successful in this particular industry, but he's an unhappy man. He's unsatisfied, uh, dissatisfied, because he didn't follow his own heart. He didn't do what he should have done. So he's paying the price. And in that sense, I think a great many people are paying a price, and therefore work is something which they don't like. They're leaving. They're leading a uh, very unsatisfied life. Well, uh, that's a good, very good point, an important one. There's another way to look at it, uh, to supplement what you said. Work has a bad connotation for many people in our culture because we have become paganized. Now, if you go back to ancient Greece, the life of the mind was the only uh, life for anyone of consequence. The person who worked with his hands, who farmed, or who uh, did anything in the way of inventions and the like, was looked down on because to work with your hands to work with the material world was seen as degrading. That's why, although a number of inventions go back to Greece, those inventions were the work of slaves. And uh, the uh, Greeks had a, a preference, by the way, for Hebrew slaves when they could get them because Hebrew slaves were work-oriented, a very important fact. Now, the fact that uh, our culture has abandoned 
a biblical perspective, has led it to despise work and to separate work from the sense of vocation. Whereas, in terms of the historic perspective of Christianity, any kind of work could be a legitimate vocation for a man. Physical, manual work was not despised. The monks under the rule of St. Benedict were taught to see work as manual work, as a responsibility and a calling under God, as well as the life of the mind. Well, yes, the, but the Greeks, you're talking now about the Greek aristocrats who had slaves and who didn't have to work, and therefore anyone who had to work was in the category of a slave, even if he was free, because he was forced to work. That, uh, I don't really know how long that circumstance lasted, probably as long as slavery lasted in that part of the world or in any other part of the world. The Macaulay did quite a scathing job on that, on uh, the fact that they knew the principles of air conditioning of uh, many other matters, and they didn't apply them because they said all it does is lighten the labor of slaves. Then I think to an extent the early centuries of Christianity involved the ennobling of the individual and therefore the individual's activities for fairly obvious reasons. But as societies become wealthy, then the whole business of manual labor falls down again to as almost a parallel with the beasts. Uh, I remember being considerably annoyed by a liberal friend of mine in New York some years ago who kept telling me that manual, that physical strength no longer meant anything, and I said, if somebody punches you in the nose, you'll change your mind. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the fact is that strength is always important, and today we, we see the pursuit of exercise in an effort to maintain some sort of strength, and that's, in my opinion, not too bad a deal. But on the other hand, it's a sort of a repaganization because the Greek baths, the Roman baths, the Roman games, the Olympics, uh, which were originally Greek, and so forth, were all part of the sport. The idea of physical prowess, of physical superiority, not connected with any particular effort, any particular productivity. It's just the idea of physically excelling over somebody else, which is a form of humiliating somebody else. Yes. Uh, ideally speaking, sport should be sport. So it's a very tangled subject. We do have people who actually work only mentally, and their work is, uh, is, is work, the same as a carpenter's work is work. I, I write books, and so do you, and I think that comes pretty close to carpentering, uh, using words or whatever. Uh, the whole question of work and play, though, right now is totally distorted. I, I for instance, find the, the, your comments on leisure uh, difficult. 
because there should be an area except for play. I mean, I think of play as something that children do, and I think of leisure as something that adults do. I mean, if you go to the theater, for instance, what is that? Where does that fall? Well, a number of very interesting studies have been written on leisure or leisure and basic to the concept as it was developed and it's not an old idea has not been uh, the life of the mind such as going to the theater or going to see a Shakespearean play but rather substituting this type of activity for work so that the leisure class is the class that does not have to work it lives off the wealth of the others. Well, of course, the United States has always frowned on that. Uh, yes. This is, a, of all countries, of all modern countries, I don't know about the Soviet, uh, this is one country where that has never been accepted as an acceptable way of life. In Britain or in France or in Italy, uh, I don't know about Germany, uh, but certainly in Britain, the whole purpose of work to the British is to get enough money to buy a landed estate so that you never again have to do anything. And you, you live then off your the interest of your capital and you become a gentleman, etc., etc. They still have that idea to a very great extent. But we've not had that. I was very I've been very surprised I was entertained at the homes of some uh, very highly placed businessmen and they had no servants and uh, the wife would cook and serve the meal and I've, I've always found that particular aspect of American life to be very remarkable mm -hmm. uh, most Americans feel that you should do something mm -hmm. and but when men retire now I see them going off into golf. I've lost some of my best friends to golf. I've never seen them again. There must be a well they drop into. They cease to have human connections. And so I've even known several who dropped dead on the golf course, maybe because of the betting. Uh, it seems to be more of a game of frustration and fulfillment, from what I can gather. But I find it difficult to understand how grown men who once were productive could spend that time on the golf course. I mean, to me, it's a, it's, it's a, it doesn't fall into the category of sport or leisure or anything definable. It's a game. Mm -hmm. And a game, I think, is childish. Well, I, I think that's very interesting. I, I knew a minister some years ago, a very... Uh, able pastor who retired uh, when he was at the prime in order to be able to devote himself to golf. He'd been living for that. And it made me rethink everything he had been before. <laughs> so I never thought much of him after that, nor, uh, thank God, had any further connections with him. Some people are retired because of the laws of their organization, but he retired because he wanted to devote himself to golf. Uh, something comes to mind which I think reveals the difference between America, 
although you had the leisure class idea among the uh, ruling class in the South, which marked them as separate from the rest of America and somehow not in the same category. About 40 years or so ago, just after the war, I recall a farmer in California telling me about uh, his experience and his son's experience. He was a successful farmer, in fact, uh, became quite wealthy. He was thrifty, hardworking, uh, he avoided debt, he operated his family farm and accumulated a considerable amount of money. His son, however, chose to become an airline pilot, came out of the war and went into the airlines and very quickly became an airline captain. Now, it so happened that within a year or so, both of them visited relatives in Europe. The farmer had no respect for his relatives, although he could have bought and sold them. His son, because he was a captain and wore a uniform, was greatly admired by the European relatives because he had status. And that was the key. And it seemed to uh, the old farmer very, very ironic that uh, the difference should be so marked and that they had no appreciation of his accomplishments and in, in fact were a bit embarrassed by him because in terms of the old country, he was beneath their status, although he was far wealthier than any of them. Now, I do believe that uh, represents uh, something unique about America. The Puritan work ethic has accomplished uh, things here that you don't see anywhere else in the world. That's true. And uh, we probably have the greatest number of highly skilled people of any civilization that's ever been created. On the other hand, we may be falling into the Roman pit. The Romans were so practical, and they were very efficient. They were marvelous engineers, marvelous builders, constructors. And everything they did, they did with great efficiency. But they had no respect for ideas. They had no, after they lost their faith, of course, they had no sense of the transcendent. And they fell apart quite simply because they were so, so short-sighted. Now, we have something similar at work here. Now, I remember that Hannah Arendt, and I still th I think it was one of her most brilliant observations, said, the work that the average man does is very similar to housework done by women in the sense that it consists of a number of essential and necessary tasks which are totally undramatic, which leave no trace, no record, which are not watched, not noticed, and yet, if left undone, would bring everything down. 
Mm-hmm. Very good. It's a very good observation yes. because the argument of the feminists that men have been living in a more exciting world than women is basically ridiculous. Yes. Lots of them, I think, are discovering it by entering the male, male world. And carrying coffee into the boss is not much better than being a chambermaid, in my opinion. But that's beside the point. The real thing here is that work to no point beyond one's own appetite is a death to the spirit. And unless there is a sense of vocation or a calling, there is no worship involved. It is simply going through motions. Now, when we switch, and uh, economically speaking, from the basic industries into the service industries, we are switching from what is important and basic and honorable to what is not. Mm-hmm. A nation of servants doesn't do anybody any good. You can look at Italy. You can look at any other country that's living on the tourist trade and you can see what happens. You can even see that in cities in the United States. I've seen the city of San Diego lose its character in honor of the tourist trade. We can see it in Great Britain on a larger scale, which is turning into another Spain, living on the glories of its past, waiting for tourists to come to fill the hotels and the bed and breakfasts and the restaurants and so forth and so on. And this means that all kinds of people are living in servitude, servants, modern equivalents of slaves, because they have to, you know, come here, waiter, come here, boy, and so forth. Uh, No matter how you disguise it, this is what servants used to do. And the fact that you're being a servant of the public doesn't alter the condition. I'd like to go back to something you said at the beginning, about the Romans. The very remarkable practicality of the Romans was also their downfall because they did not respect the world of ideas. Yes. And you need uh, the thinker as well as the doer in any society. And the role of the thinker is not an easy one because you're working at a desk day after day as you and I do, writing without any feedback. You don't have an audience. That's true. I often feel as though the book has gone out the window and into a well. Yes. You uh, write books, you write articles, and except for an occasional letter, you don't know of the impact it's having. You don't have the satisfaction of seeing people sit at a table and eat a meal and enjoy it, relish it. You're removed from the audience. But The world of ideas is very important because it is the world of complexity. Now that was the Roman failure. William Carroll Bark, uh, a very fine historian, in writing on Rome said that one of the great failures of Rome was its urge to simplify everything. Mm. And as a result, it led to an oversimplification of every area of life, a concentration of all powers in one person, the emperor, and a bureaucracy that was totally under him, so that it destroyed Rome. 
it brought things to a standstill because the more a culture develops, the more complex it becomes. And therefore, the more, logically, it should be decentralized. Well, well, we're making that same error in the modern world. We're seeking to simplify everything. The Marxists have done it to their own ruin in the Soviet Union as far as their economic life is concerned. We are doing it progressively here. We are concentrating. We are simplifying everything as though once we control everything from one city, Washington, D.C., our problems will be resolved. But the more we simplify, the more we destroy. Well, of course, the Soviets began with the worst of eras, and that was to sit on everybody and restrict the ability to think and to propose and to recommend and to order, for that matter, to a small group which meant that they put a ceiling on the creativity of the entire Soviet society, and a very low ceiling at that. So therefore they have to live by stealing ideas from the West. And we're achieving the same abortion, you might say, by regulation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ever talk to anybody who's involved in providing materials for the Department of Defense. You get some idea of the nightmare that's been created in terms of qualifications and specifications mm -hmm. and routines that have been created for the defense industry. It takes us now years and years to develop a system. And this goes back for quite a distance. I remember when the first space vehicle was sent up, you remember it just penetrated and made mm -hmm. it curve and came yes. back again with, with a monkey or whatever in it. Well, one of the technical problems was how to prevent the thing from burning up upon re-entry into the space orbit. So all our metal urges went to work and they put together the most elaborate and complex alloys to fulfill this task. The Russians, on the other hand, used oak which charred and then went out. Bing. On that in that case, they had beat us to the punch by their simplification. But their real problem has been their control, and that's becoming our problem. Yes. It's control that you're talking about. Yes. Control from a central source. Right. There was an interesting... Uh article in one of the journals I read this past week about the Russian ballet. And the Russian ballet was, uh, according to the author, as it appeared recently in our cultural exchanges, uh, painful to watch. Recently? Yes. And the author said, in effect, that what had uh, once been the glory of the ballet world, the inheritance that it had received from the reign of the Tsars and their love of ballet, had now become so controlled and so stiff and wooden, unchanging, it had deteriorated. No innovations been allowed. No, and as a result, even in the performance of the classical ballets, uh, the critic found it 
painful to watch, and he was being very careful in what he wrote because he knew it was almost heretical to be critical of Soviet arts. Mm -hmm. Well, the political, to politicize everything in a culture destroys spontaneity mm -hmm. and introduces another level of judgment in which the artist isn't judged by ability but by political position and political trustworthiness. But what do you get then? You get an obedient servant instead of a somebody creative. And of course, the classical ballets were beautiful, but modification has to come in. Nothing can remain fixed not even religious ceremonies. In fact, one of the reasons that so many churches become behind the times and become irrelevant is because they freeze themselves. Mm -hmm. They yes. don't change. You mentioned uh, a bit about regulations in relationship to sport, just in passing. Uh, you probably played baseball as a boy, as yes, I did. Sure. In fact, I could hardly wait to get out every day uh, to play baseball, day after day. And we played on the brickyards. It was wonderful. Yes. And it was a lot more fun when a group of us boys got together, chose up sides and played, than it was at school, on the playground, where a teacher supervised it and I didn't uh, play, provided and an umpire. On, on those occasions, that, I was absent. That took a lot out of the game. It sure did. Now, sometimes we'd get into some uh, arguments uh, about whether someone was safe or not when we were playing by ourselves, sure. but we settled those arguments. Oh, sure. And it was fun. Yes. The whole thing was yes. marvelous. Well, could you imagine being in the Little League today with the parents <laughs> sitting in the, in the grandstand and yeah. wearing a uniform and all those <laughs> regulations? Those poor kids. <laughs> They're never free. They, ne no. they don't have a childhood. No. They don't have a chance to grow up testing one another. It isn't play, then, in no, the same not. way it's that it was when no, we were playing. It's, it's, it's play is play. Yes. Play is play. Yes. Yes, I remember... <laughs> and marbles also. We played for keeps when I was a boy. And that was that. There's been a great many things that have been taken out of the category. Uh, I can't get over the fact that kids today have to send a valentine to everybody in the class. That, that <laughs> destroys the entire purpose of the valentine. Yes. Well, it is uh, strange what has happened to play because... There were dozens upon dozens of games that we played when I was a boy that are now forgotten. They oh, disappeared. They don't play mumbly peg because a knife is too dangerous for a kid to have. Yes. And you could go down the list. There were games where we would invent, or rather uh, whittle and make everything that was going to be used. You didn't buy anything. Well, you didn't have any money for one thing. <laughs> That's for sure. It wasn't out of virtue. <laughs> <laughs> but it <laughs> became a virtue and its consequences. I'd like to uh, touch on the relationship between work and play, or rather, work and rest. 
because rest is important to uh, sound work. Without rest, the mind and the body weary. Productivity, whether in the mental or the physical sphere, decreases. So that rest is important. And in terms of the biblical doctrine of rest, it means stepping outside of our lives and outside of our planning to rest in God, knowing that He is the one who makes all things work together for good so that our work is never in vain if we are in Christ. So rest in the biblical sense is very, very uh, productive. I'd like to uh, touch on something else in connection with that. A few days ago, one of our uh, Chalcedon friends, uh, Dr. Gerhard W. Ditz, a sociologist, sent me his paper on uh, Smith and Keynes, which was published in a German periodical. And the point he makes here is an important one. There's a great deal that could be said about this paper, but basically, uh, Keynes was uh, leisure-oriented. He hated work. He never produced anything that was a systematic study. He lived to play. Uh, I think that's a good description. Yes. Whereas Adam Smith was uh, virtually a workaholic. He was at the other extreme. And as a result, each produced a different kind of culture. And we now have the culture of Keynesianism. We gravitated to it because it satisfied everything in us. Because Keynes destroyed the idea of consequence. Well, Keynes, I wouldn't, I think Keynes has been adopted by a group, by a certain sector. Let's put it that way. A ruling elite. Or, well, at this point, yes. Yes. And the worst part of our elite. Because Keynes, for one thing, didn't care about the future for a very good reason. He was a faggot. And there was no future for him. When he died, that was it. He wasn't going to have any children or any family or any wife, and the future meant nothing to Keynes, and it reflected in his outlook. Whereas Smith was a Christian who was future-oriented, and that had a great deal to do, I think, with the way they both functioned. Now, of course, when you say Keynes worked to play, he worked to sin. Yes. He really did. And Smith worked in order to help the world. Yes. You might, you know, to say, to, to the Christian duty to make the world better than it was when you came in, to leave it better. Smith was probably a mild deist, but his entire framework was uh, Christian and Calvinistic. Now, this is what Cain said, describing himself and his friends and circles in uh, school and afterwards. I quote, We were immoralists, recognized no moral obligation, no inner sanction to conform or obey, 
The prime objects in life are love, the creation, and enjoyment of aesthetic experience and the pursuit of knowledge. Morals are unnecessary. Well, that's, that's a very fancy language for what he and Strachey called the greater sodomy. Yes. He uh, made no pretense of covering up the fact of his homosexuality. He spoke about it very openly, matter-of-factly. He didn't see anything wrong with anything that he did. And he married late in life, probably in order to gain uh, status. It was a pro forma, pro forma marriage to a lesbian ballerina. Yes. So, uh, as Dr. Ditz notes, and I quote, it is Cain's humanistic, hedonistic, sensualistic philosophy which assured his enormous popularity, not his economic theories. Well, just, just a minute now. Keynes was promoted. He was promoted. Yes. He was taught. There were all sorts of books and spin-offs and programs and discussions and prizes and awards and professorships and everything else for Keynes. And Smith has been ignored. Yes. So to say that Keynes became popular is to underrate the vast machinery which went to work. I've sent away for a book on the apparatus behind the popularity of uh, William Faulkner, the novelist. Ah, that would be interesting. Now, it hasn't appeared yet, but I've already put in an order for it because I understand that it's written and it's being printed. And when William Faulkner was picked up at the end of World War II, he had 14 out-of-print books, period, and most Americans had never heard of him. All the books had died in the marketplace, and a group got together to create a popular figure, a big literary lion out of Faulkner, and they succeeded. Now, I can't read him. He's a pain in the neck. He can't conclude a sentence. He winds around with these serpentine phrases and so forth and so on and, and uh, repellent to me. However, the same thing you might say is true of Keynes. If you've read Keynes, and I've read, struggled through some of Keynes, he, he has flashes of wit, a great deal of sarcasm, but economically speaking, he leaves a lot to be desired, as we all know, because we've lived with the results of his errors. But there was a machinery at work, and the people should not be blamed. No, uh, this doesn't. Uh, he's speaking of the cultural uh, element that uh, tends to uh, play the role of promoters, and uh, to them, everything that Keynes said fitted in with the world they wanted. Uh, Smith's thinking is very much with us. Uh, but not on the uh, upper levels of our culture. Uh, Keynes was promoted at every step. He became a lord, an English lord, yes. which is a part of the same uh, establishment, as mm -hmm. it were, in operation. Mm -hmm. 
and he was recognized by the pundits in this country. You mentioned Faulkner. I knew of Faulkner when I was a student in the 30s mm -hmm. because the intellectual establishment at the universities felt that he was far better than those writers who were popular with the public. Mm. As a result, uh, Faulkner was regarded as a great thinker. Now, uh, Faulkner was as irresponsible and degenerate as they come, and that was precisely his appeal, for the same reason that Keynes appealed to the establishment. Their kind of thinking, of course, is the destruction of everything that uh, makes for society, and hence, on more than one occasion, in more than one context, Keynes's reply with regard to the future and to the consequences of his economics, or the consequences of everything connected with him and his circle was, in the long run, we are all dead. Well, yes, without progeny. Mm -hmm. So that what Keynes represented in his own way was the Roman and Greek saying of degenerate Greeks and Romans, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, of course, that was a sigh of despair. And I wonder at the... At the great furor today by Keynes's soul brothers and the question of AIDS. They uh, seem to be treated as victims, as I say, victims of syphilis, victims of pneumonia, victims of tuberculosis. Uh, I suppose in a way every person who gets sick is a victim, but they're kind of stretching the point and in any event, what are we talking about? We're talking about a class that is decided to embark upon suicide. In yes. any event, these yes. are people who have decided to kill themselves as people, as human beings, as part of the human race. Keynes, of course, was promoting extravagance on the part of governments without responsibility to the people. So, of course, the politicians thought it was a wonderful proposal. I wonder, on the whole question of play, the Bloomsbury group uh, didn't seem to me they s to be a very playful group. They were a dreary group. Yes. They thought they would break all the rules and get away with it. And I think the average person is apt to believe in periods like the ones we're in now that justice, the principles of justice have been suspended because they don't, you can't see them in operation. But the fact is that justice is inexorable. It always works. The Romans paid a terrible price for their dissipation, long protracted agony. The Russian aristocracy paid a heavy price. So did the ancien regime in France so are the elite of the Americans paying a heavy price for the pleasures that they presumably enjoy. Do you realize that we don't even have ordinary parties on the top level in the United States anymore? They have fundraisers. Uh -huh. 
And everybody is invited who has enough money to write the check. So there is no such thing as society. There is no such thing as a, as a real party by real people who are real friends of one another or associates of one another. They're just simply the 7th Avenue subway in tuxedos. Yes. Uh, this is the death of civilization. Yes. And of course, uh, uh, Shafarovich, the Russian uh, scientist, has said that socialism has a will to death, and it wants the death of marriage, the death of society, the death of mankind. Well, he's he's he was he was wonderful. He he boiled down. Uh, the theory of socialism that uh, Witt Vogel had done mm -hmm. at great length and, and made it very readable. But we're destroying private clubs. We're destroying private parties. We're destroying a party for no purpose excepting just to have a party without being able to placate the rabble by saying let's uh, we're going to donate all this to uh, some cause or another and you know the cause gets the fag end the short end of the sums that are raised because most of the money goes for the hotel the caterer and this that and the other thing but we've we're losing in this the whole idea of private play the, the Little League, I think, is a glaring example of this, where the boys are not going to play. In fact, they have boys and girls play baseball together because, you know, can you imagine? Now, I'm not saying that girls at a certain age aren't capable of it because I remember once a girl of a certain age beat me up when I was about <laughs> ten. And we had a fight and she won. And hands down, too. She was taller, I will say that. But strong. <laughs> so it's not unknown. But we didn't have them on the team. <laughs> well, uh, going back again to uh, Dr. Ditz's very interesting paper, he calls attention to Adam Smith's Calvinistic uh, perspectives. But he says of the two men... Smith and Keynes, there are far more references to religion in Keynes than in Smith. Really? And he says that uh, Keynes is busy in his writings rejecting the premise, the rationale, and inferences of the Calvinistic ethic. And he goes on to quote from... Uh, Keynes to give an example of the kind of uh, concern with religion. I quote, The world is not governed from above. The higher states of mind are unattached to the before and the after. It is the here and now. In the long run, we are dead. Enlightened self-interest does not operate in the public interest. The economic problem is not the permanent problem of the human race. We have been trained far too long to strive not to enjoy. The day is not far off when the economic problem will take a back seat and that the arena of the heart will be reoccupied by human relations, creative behavior, religions, a religion 
without a theology, unquote. In other words, religion without God. Well, I think that's very... Higher sodomy. Very ironic in view of what I was just saying about the destruction of sociability mm-hmm. and, uh, and of play, for that matter. Play has become, let me put it this way, politics has permeated all our games. Politics has permeated the schoolroom, the classroom. It's permeated the church. It's permeated all areas of social relationships. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what Keynes was promising indirectly to the people who would abandon religion and the higher power. Well, if the state is God, then politics, not Christianity, becomes a major concern in the classroom, in on the uh, playing fields, everywhere. Oh, that's what it is. Yes. Well, we today have a divided culture because we have a very sizable percentage of the American population that professes Christianity. And yet you have an element that controls the media and the world of entertainment, the world of politics, uh, almost every upper level, which is militantly and aggressively anti-Christian. That's true. Well, as you know, you, we're, you and I are working on together with Mark, this book on Arminianism and Calvinism. And I've, we've just gone through that Tynak work yes. in which the Church of England was taken over by the Arminian element uh, directed uh, by the king. And certainly they had control of the religious establishment of Britain. And under Archbishop of Canterbury Loud, they proceeded to apply... Uh, mandates against anyone that differed with them. In fact, the, the English today still call anyone who isn't with the Church of England a nonconformist. They still carry in their vocabulary the idea that conformity is the Church of England, and a nonconformist or a dissenter is somebody who is not a member of the Church of England. I regard the present cultural control by anti-Christians of all across the board, and of course they consist of all sorts of people, all sorts of backgrounds, they're not any single group, to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Their numbers are relatively few in comparison to the vast number of Christians in this country. And uh, they're in the process of making us all acquainted with the fact that anti-Christianity is alive and virulent in our midst, and in my opinion, they will organize the Christian community. I certainly hope so. I do believe it is beginning to happen because they are so aggressively pushing for the death of Christianity. I see this in the courtrooms all the time. And... They are pushing for the death of Christianity because they are fearful of its revival. And hence they have heightened uh, the intensity of their assault. Well, they're waking us up. 
They're waking the Christians up. Yes. If they had if they had left Christianity alone, it might have slumbered away altogether. Do you know that it's curious to me, and in, in, in your uh, reading there of that quote from Keynes brings it forward again, how these people find themselves unable to leave Christianity alone. Mm -hmm. They are yes. constantly bringing the subject up in a critical way when the Christians have said nothing. Yes. Nobody ever went out of their way to force Lord Keynes into believing anything. Nobody gave a damn what he believed. Mm -hmm. And yet he has to sit down and write in indignation about the beliefs of somebody else. Yes, yes. And nobody seems to bring this strange paradox to bear. Mm -hmm. They are seething with hatred and cannot contain themselves. You know, I've talked to a couple who had come back from Spain about ten years or so ago. They were in Spain during Easter week, which is always, used to be quite a, uh, an experience. And they also went into some of the big cathedrals. They were non-Christians, by the way. Totally non-Christian. Their background was non-Christian. And they, I said, were well, there many people in the cathedral? It's sort of a joke. And they said, oh, yes, packed. But, of course, they said they don't believe. Then I said, why do you suppose they were in the cathedral? Just to impress one another? Mm -hmm. yes. And they didn't answer. Mm -hmm. But they had convinced themselves that Christians go to church and don't believe. Yes. Why would millions of people do that? Yes, and you can see the consequences when the faith is destroyed in certain mainline churches. People stop going. There's no point in going. Of course they Just don't go. Just the elderly who are going in the main, to the mainline churches, because the rest of the left. Well, this brings up the aspect that you mentioned in the very beginning in which you divided this topic into work into leisure, into play, and into worship. Worship has to be basic. It has to motivate the work and the play and the rest. It has to give a focus to a person's life or else there is a distortion then in every aspect of his being. Somebody said something rather similar about the brand new towns in California. These cities that have, that have sprung up developer paradises, so to speak, where everything is brand new. Yeah. Levittown was the first one after yes. the war back right. east. Everything is brand new. The shops are brand new, the houses are brand new, the streets, the lampposts, everything else. And he said, Somehow or another, he said, people can be ridiculous in front of this brand new backdrop and almost get away with it. But he said, if you put them in the midst of an older context, their same sort of behavior is too ridiculous to be endured. Mm -hmm. Because there is something about a street upon which other generations have passed, which contains its own message. Yes. And in the same sense, I would say that a life that is lived without the sense of the transcendent is ridiculous mm -hmm. because nothing else could enable you to endure the sufferings involved in being alive and in being sincere and in working and so forth. Mm -hmm.
And that's, I suppose, where the worship comes in. Yes, yes. Well, one of the problems with worship today is that it is not worship, and that's why the churches are weak. Worship has to be God-centered. You go there to grow in your knowledge of God and in your experience of Him, rather than to find what you need. And we've given a man-centered uh, emphasis uh, to uh, worship and have destroyed it. I believe it was just yesterday when uh, Grace and Dorothy were discussing uh, certain forms of church life that Grace referred to the modern trinity, me, myself, and I. And that emphasis carries on over in too many churches. They become pleasers of men. And that destroys worship because, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism declared, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, of course, worship without respect, worship without a proper sense of awe, is not really worship. It's a form. Yes. It's a form. I mean, the, the Romans had temples, you know, to virtues, to chastity, to loyalty, uh, to courage, and uh, various and sundry other virtues. Just to virtues. These virtues in the abstract. Now, I can't imagine anybody going into one and coming out <laughs> with any of that virtue. Uh, but they were, by that time, they were desperate and they were scrabbling to find unifying concepts, having lost their faith in the old gods and in the legends. And that left them with nothing but the here and now. That left them with the fact that uh, the just didn't seem to prosper any more than the unjust, that uh, you had to, no matter how pious you were, use the right navigation to keep from going onto the rocks with a vessel and so forth. And if you're... If your area of observation is limited to the world and to society, it's very difficult to retain a sense of the transcendent. In fact, you can't. If you limit your observation to the world, you will inevitably lose your faith. Yes, and one of the disasters of Rome was that when they saw what was happening to themselves and the degeneracy that was setting in, the collapse of the family, of public morality and all things else. They tried to go back to the old-time Roman religion, and it was dead. It was dead, yes. And uh, as a result, they turned to persecuting the Christians. Well, Christians today who will not develop the faith in terms of applying the Word of God to the problems of the times and who are content to enjoying the faith as they did when they were children are going to be irrelevant, totally irrelevant to the future because they're not developing the implications of Scripture in terms of everyday life. It was one of the Puritan leaders, Pastor Robinson, I believe, who made the statement there was more light to break forth from the Word of God, that 
continually. They must seek new light from it because as they faced a problem, as they faced a crisis, a, a development in history, it would renew and extend their vision of uh, God's Word in terms of its application to the times. And that's what is missing in too many areas of the church today. Well, when the Church of England began to collapse under Archbishop Loud, under Charles II, when they tried to force the people into these empty churches and to go through rituals that they didn't believe in. You had, I don't think, a great number of reformers or Puritans. They were not numerous, no. but they were so sincere and so courageous that they managed to unhinge that entire edifice of control. Now, we're up against the same sort of thing. There is a sort of an empty series, a series of empty structures around mm -hmm. us. I, you know, to drop from the sublime to the ridiculous, it's like the eminence of Time magazine and Newsweek. Both of them are a waste of time. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Poorly written. They've been there forever, and you think they're going to be there forever. The first group that comes along with a real news magazine will wipe them both out. Mm -hmm. <coughs> The Christians that are now coming to life in this country <coughs> are probably almost as big a percentage as the Puritans were. Oh, far more. Or far more. Four percent <coughs> of England was Puritan. Now, when we develop four percent of the population that is not only Christian but Reconstructionist, we will exert a tremendous power because society always follows leaders. It follows the live ones. Yes. It's not going to follow the dead. It's not no. going to follow the imitators. It follows what's original, what's fresh, what's brave, yes. what's articulate. Well, our time is about up. Is there a no, final I statement I you'd like I, to make, Otto? No, that's it. Very good. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.